0: therefore 13 times in the book we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard and i just remind you the bible was first of all a book to be heard there wasn't a copy available for everybody and we certainly didn't have bible apps on our phones and all of that but it was simply that someone would read god's word and you would listen carefully to what they had said, and then you would discuss it and dialogue about it together. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Unconsciously, just change directions or move away. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable in every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, just read the Old Testament, the book of Exodus and Numbers for illustration of that. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Highlight that on your screen or underline it on your paper. That's the key to the entire book of Hebrews. A great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs, wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. A Roman triumph was a spectacle of incomparable grandeur. An entire day would be dedicated to this celebration of military success. Beginning with a breakfast for dignitaries, including senators, magistrates, his army, and special representatives of the people, the crowd would first salute him. Then, after appropriate prayers of thanks had been offered to the gods, the victorious commander would deliver an eloquent speech. He would first praise his legions, mentioning specific individuals for their contributions, and give decorations for valor and distribute money to his soldiers. Following this breakfast, the victor would put on special purple-colored robes and offer personal sacrifices to the gods. He was then prepared for his big moment. The procession entered the city at a specific point, a gate that was dedicated solely to this purpose, and then would proceed through the streets and the squares of the great city of Rome along the route selected by the commander himself." The consuls and politicians would lead, followed by a number of impressive-looking captives taken from the fields of battle. Best of all would be those who were captured as royalty, theatrically chained in submission. Certain episodes of the battle were depicted either on paintings or were acted out involving real captives. There were musicians, torchbearers, and flag-wavers adding to the pageantry as well as exotic flowers and animals from conquered regions displayed. Next in the procession came the war booty. Goods of gold, silver, and other precious things were put on display. And then finally came the victorious commander himself. As the star of the show, the godlike warrior would ride a spectacular tall-sided chariot pulled by four select horses. He would be wearing a laurel crown and carry a laurel branch in his right hand. In his left hand, he carried an ivory scepter with an engraved eagle on its top, the symbol of his triumph. He would be accompanied in the chariot by a slave whose task was to hold above the commander's head a golden crown and continuously whisper in his ear this reminder In the midst of all this adoration, you must remember you are only a mortal man. You are not actually a god. (laughs) After this chariot came the commander's children and his officers mounted on horseback. Finally came the victorious troops who sang songs designed to ward off the jealousy of the gods. Last of all came the crowd of grateful citizens who had won their freedom by the defeat of their oppressing enemy in the battle. When the whole process finally reached Capitol Hill, the victorious commander would liberate a few prisoners and also sentence others to death. Finally, he would take from the many treasures captured in the conflict and distribute gifts to many who had assembled to honor him and celebrate his victory. This was a Roman triumph. Now the book of Hebrews is written not to an individual. So I I have to start by confessing that last week I I defaulted to interpreting and applying Hebrews uh, in an American mindset way. We we are a selfie-driven generation. We are autonomous and independent individuals. But in that part of the world, things were familial. Community oriented, tribal as it were. It was a it was a, a shame and honor culture. And this letter was not written to a particular individual, but to a small congregation of real people that were meeting in a real place in a real time space and also facing a real legitimate danger. For that reason, the author says, Pay much closer attention to the things you have heard. Because if we neglect those things, how great then will be our judgment. As I was reading it, I I suddenly realized that there is this theme of the great triumphal celebration laced into the text. He talks about such a great salvation. Salvation is the rescue and deliverance of those who are under condemnation it is the entering in in order to save and then the last phrase which I thought was going to be the heart of the message until two weeks ago and that he was distributing gifts by the Holy Spirit according to his will and that there is a whole message in that but I couldn't release the text from that so great a salvation this is a celebration of a triumphal entry for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, so that I don't lose you in that, let's go back and unpack it. Last week, we talked about this great salvation and I gave you these five bullet points. This salvation is never based on merit. It's not something that we can earn or must earn either to originally attain it or to sustain it. It is accomplished by a divine process. We talked about Romans chapter 8 last week. We were chosen in Him. Those that He chose, He predestined. Those that He predestined, He called. Those that He called, He sanctified. Those that He sanctifies, He glorifies. It's all part of a procession or a movement, which is basically, as we said last week, I have been saved. I am being saved. I shall be saved. It also operates with man's will to choose. As we'll say in a few minutes, That that what God does with the Gospel is He doesn't give us information. He extends an invitation. It It is an offer to deliverance that we have to respond to. It is effected by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's simply because those that are called to faith in Jesus Christ, when they are first called, they are dead, in their trespasses and sins. And deceased people cannot respond to any commandment, no matter how tasty or desirous that invitation might be. They are simply incapable of a response. So finally, we have to understand this so great salvation is fully the work of God's saving grace. For Linda and I, that, that that was a hard doctrinal truth for us to come to grips with. I was raised in a a moderate Armenian theological world. And Linda was raised in a daisy world. He loves me, he loves me not. You could lose your salvation at a moment's time. So in our Bible college days, we, we, it, it, I literally in the Bibles that we had in those days, we, on the flyleaf, we had Scripture references written. We'd be reading the Scripture and go, there's another one that says it, but the, the real winner for me came in, in James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights with whom there is no shifting or shadow. Every good thing has to start there. So this salvation is first and foremost, and finally, the work of God's saving grace. Now again, to unpack what this so great a salvation is, I, I, I steal this outline from David Platt. I love the way he put it in simple terms. My, my father, years ago when I was a child, a little bit older than William, but not all that much, I remember him clearly saying that grace simply means this, God's riches at Christ's expense. And it just stuck. David Platt gives us one on the gospel. The gospel is G is God's character. O is the offense of sin. S is the sufficiency of Christ. The P is the personal response. The E is the eternal urgency. And the L is life transformation. So it felt like we needed just kind of... if, If we don't get the gospel right at this point, the rest of the book of Hebrews is going to fall apart on us. We'll not properly understand it and quite honestly if at faith bible church we lose sight of what the gospel truly is that then we are impotent to make a difference not only in our age and time but also on the impact of eternity so we'll go back through it one at a time the g stands for god's character Exodus 34 is probably the best description of that, where it says in the 6th verse, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty." God does his great saving work on the basis of his character, which must be kept in balance and harmony. He is a God of love. He is also a God of wrath. We are saved from the wrath of God, but we are saved from the wrath of God by the love of God. Keep those two, as one counselor says, advisor says, that even a thin pancake has two sides. So the two sides of the character of God is he is a God of love, but he is also a God of wrath. One author put it this way, to see the glorious character of God is to see the offensiveness of our sin. And until we understand, it is, I mean, I'm thinking back to Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah said that that in the year that King Uzziah died he saw the Lord of high and lifted up exalted and and his train filled this th- flowed from the throne and and it, they were cherubim flying around saying holy 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 and Isaiah if ever there was a godly man in the nation of Israel it had to be Isaiah and Isaiah saw that and he said Whoa, is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips until you see the glorious character of a holy God you will not understand how horribly lost defiled and unworthy you truly are so the G for gospel stands for the character of God the O stands for the offense of sin the severity of a sin is determined by the one who is sinned against so when we rebel, sin is simply rebellion against God. It happened in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Satan came out and tempted them by quoting Scripture. And says, has God really said? And then he quotes Scripture. And the woman became a legalist immediately, a fundamentalist. And so she added a little bit to it because she didn't trust herself not simply to eat it. But she added that I should not touch it. That's not what God said. But then they made a willful decision to choose to become like god rather than to submit to god sin is an act of rebellion but it is a rebellion against a holy god that's what makes it so grievous as the prodigal son learned after asking his father for that share of the estate that belonged to him luke chapter 15 and he took his third of the inheritance and he sold the land at fire market prices and then he went off to a foreign land and he squandered it all and he finds himself without friends and without a job and without food and he thinks about home and how if I was just hired by my father, I'd at least have more than enough bread to eat. He decides that he will go home and this is what he is going to craft his, as soon as he sees his dad, he's going to say this, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he got it exactly right. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Because every act of sin is first and foremost an act of rebellion against God. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he cannot hear. It's your sin that must be addressed. The the wonder of the gospel is, is that undeserving sinners are rescued and saved. I love Charles Spurgeon's quote. He says, how can we remember his death without sorrowing over the sin which made his death necessary? The greatness, the severity of our sin is determined by the one who is sinned against. And He is holy, holy, holy. The S of the Gospel stands for the sufficiency of Christ. Both His deity and His humanity are absolutely essential for Him to be our Savior. He must be both fully God and fully man For this simple reason, he must satisfy the righteous demands of God's law. No one else had been able to do that. And yet when they brought Jesus to trial, they had to bribe witnesses against him to find anything at all to convict him of. As I've always said, Jesus must have been the most miserable, or, or being the younger brother of Jesus must have been the most miserable call in life. Because they would keep going, Mom, why doesn't Jesus ever get in trouble? Why why are you always whacking down on me? But Jesus, He's always just like... He was totally deity at the same time He was total humanity. And He alone fully satisfied the righteous demands of God's law. It is He alone who was able to die the death that we deserve to die. The whole narrative of redemption through the Scripture is that an innocent one must die to cover the obligation, the debt, the offenses of the guilty. It started in the garden when God killed animals and clothed the man and the woman with the skins of those animals, though they themselves had tried to cover themselves with man-made garments of leaves and that. Nothing that man can produce makes him acceptable to stand in the presence of a holy, all-knowing, all-seeing God. Blood was shed in the garden. And then from there on, it was just one lamb sacrifice after the other. The innocent had to pay the penalty for the guilty. And then came Christ, who was certified innocent. And he died the death that we deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay the debt. And he paid it. But the other thing is that he is sufficient in this. that He finally, ultimately defeated the one enemy man could not conquer. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15... Death is man's last great enemy, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, in the tomb, and rose from the dead, death no longer gets the last word. He conquered the one enemy. Man cannot conquer. Yeah, I think I can, I can wander this direction just a little bit. I, when you think about what is going on, and I don't care what side of the argument you fall on, and there's an argument on every side about... The whole take a shot in the arm, put a mask, of cloth over your face and all that. The reality is, is that we are living in a world of fallen people, in a fallen world, where death awaits all of us. And we are simply desperately trying to take control of an undefeated enemy. The fact is, is that only Christ could conquer the grave. Only he could defeat the hold of death. He is sufficient. The P stands for personal response. Man was created in God's image, but that image was corrupted by his sin. Man is still the image bearer of God. Even after sin entered in. He says in Genesis chapter 9, when when Noah and the family came off of the ark, he said now, everything that is running around on four legs, you you can shoot, eat, to the glory of Jesus. You know, just every animal is yours, you can eat it for that. But if an animal should strike against a human and kill him, the animal has to die. And if a human kills a man, the human has to die why because you have risen up against the image of God again that's what makes the slaughter of the innocents so wrong and offensive it's murder it's striking out against the image of God it's corrupted by sin. But it's still God's image. I'm not sure I'm trying to start a political movement or something, but why is it wrong to evict somebody from your apartment for not paying the rent, but you can evict a baby from the womb at the will of the mother at any moment? It doesn't make sense. It is an image bearer of God. But it was corrupted by rebellion. It is separated from the God whose image it bears by its sin. It is spiritually dead. Incapable of fulfilling the righteous demands of the law. And to that one image-bearer, though corrupted by sin, is extended an invitation. Come to me all of you who are weary and heavy laden and. I will give you rest. He came to His own, John 1 says, and His own received Him not. But as many as did receive Him, to them He gave them the right to be called the children of God, even to those who believed in His name. There is an invitation out there waiting for you. It's got your name on it. It's an invitation. It's not simply gospel information. The problem is, is that no man will long to be rescued until he understands how desperately, hopelessly lost he truly is. That's why when we're sharing the good news of the gospel, the good news has to include the bad news. Because if there is no wrath of God to fear, if there is no eternal separation from Christ, then there really is no reason to be concerned. You have to understand how lost you really are. One author said, uh, rather than shake your finger at God and ask how he could send good people to a horrible hell, we should be asking how a righteous God could let any bad people into his heaven. Oh, i never forget about, I don't know, 35 years ago or so, uh, Bob Whitson was, was teaching a theology class For me, and uh, I had always, I'd always lived with the hour of decision kind of mindset. That's the world I grew up in. My dad was a traveling evangelist and Bible teacher, and and he would always remind people, "You have come to the moment of your decision, and when you leave here tonight, you will have decided." And so, in my mind, I, I wish I had a marker board, but I had this line that kind of went along. This is my life. I come to this point, and then I hear the good news of Jesus. And I make a decision, will I accept it or reject it? And if I accept it, then I immediately start this progression toward becoming more like Jesus and less like me as I make my way to glory and to heaven. Or I reject it and I jump on a grease slide and I go straight to hell. That was my image. I'll never forget, Bob drew it on a marker board. And he drew the line like this. This is your life. You come to the moment of decision... And if you decide to embrace the call, then you begin this sanctification process to become like Jesus. If you don't, you just keep going on that line. Because we're already living under condemnation. It doesn't wait until I decide and then condemn us. We're condemned already. So we should ask the question, not why is it that good people are sent to hell? But why are any bad people allowed into heaven? The E stands for eternal urgency. It, it's, it's this one that didn't let me move on to the verses 5 and following. This offer that Jesus makes is life and death urgent. What you choose to do with the offer that Jesus has made to you will determine your eternal destination there is a glorious forever heaven but there is also a horrible forever hell and in between the two according to Luke 16 there is a great chasm fixed and on the other side of the grave there is no bridge across the two as he said you cannot come over to us and we cannot come over to you about three years ago i preached that text here at a funeral and the hearse driver wanted me to ride to the cemetery with him and so we're driving away and we got about just about out on 84th street and he said you know i'm a catholic i'm a long-term catholic i'm a retired business owner but I'm, I'm, i'm a catholic and he said you just eliminated purgatory and I said, talk to me about that. So we talked about this fact that there is, for, the, for their theology, there is an opportunity to both pray and pay your way out of eternal damnation or something. As we pulled into Fairview Cemetery, he said, you know, I'd really like to talk to you more about that. You've really unnerved my understanding. So after we did the committal, I went back to the hearse to catch my ride back here and somebody else was driving. I've never seen the man again. There is a forever heaven and it is glorious but there is forever hell and it's horrible. Jesus spoke frequently of hell. It's the real thing. If you choose to live without Jesus now you will die without Christ forever. And the urgency is this, as my dad would have said. If you do not yet know Jesus as your own personal Savior, and you leave our gathering this morning, you have made your decision. And you never know when it will be your last day. You never know. The L stands for life transformation conversion is the divinely enabled personal response of individuals to the gospel in which they turn from their sin and themselves to trust Jesus alone as savior and Lord bookshelves have been filled over the last 40 years with pro and con arguments about is it possible to embrace Jesus as Savior and to some subsequent moment in your time determine to make Jesus Lord. But I think if you do an honest reading of the scriptures, you're going to find out chapter by chapter, verse by verse, Jesus is already Lord. Whether you acknowledge Him or not doesn't matter. He is Lord. So, true conversion, true salvation, so great a salvation, is simply recognizing the fact that I am guilty in my sin and separated from a holy God, and that I myself have no resource to save myself. And so, coming with totally empty hands, with nothing in my hands to bring, Simply to the cross I cling, as Fanny would say. We come. Acknowledging that He is both Savior and Lord. And when we do that, He changes us. The wonderful thing about the gospel is that Jesus loves us too much to ask us to change ourselves so that He can love us. But the other side of it, He loves us too much To not change us with his love. A.W. Tozer said, if one is not changed by grace, one has not been saved by grace. You don't have to change yourself. He he does that. The Spirit of God, we're going to talk about that here in a week or two. The Spirit of God moves in, takes up residence, and starts to clean you up from the inside out. And as he's doing the cleanup work, people begin to see the change that's taking place. You're not much faster than you see it yourself. He changes us. Counselor Ed Welch put it this way: who or what we love above all else is who or what we worship. And what we worship controls us. That's the gospel. This is so great salvation. What are some of the other implications of it? Number one, this great salvation promises a full reconciliation. Revelation 21 and 22 says that that this God who drove the sinful rebellious couple out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3 suddenly has opened up the gates of a new paradise and He welcomes us in. And suddenly the God whose face we have longed down through history to see, but no one can see the face of God and live. Suddenly now we see His face and He writes His name on our forehead. We are suddenly with God. We are going to be like priests living in a glorious temple. We're going to be like a bride who is finally joined to her husband after a long waiting time. We're going to be like children who are securely at home with their father. We're going to live like the heirs of a king and enjoy all of his treasures and blessings with him. We're going to be like guests invited to a banquet that never ends. There's full reconciliation. Revelation 21-22. is also complete restoration paradise will be restored what was lost in the rebellion will be restored he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth our relationships that are broken as fallen people in a fallen world even brothers and sisters we get on each other's nerves we offend one another we end up with a separated broken relationship those relationships will be restored and the bondage of sin will be broken. And we will be free to finally live the way we were created to live. And there's ultimate reunion. Going to be like citizens going home. I love this in Philippians chapter 3 and the 20th verse. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things even unto himself we are going to be finally home as citizens that i love that philippians 320 and uh, Many years ago, the the grandkids were left when they were William's size and age. And and we we had a porch swing on the South Street old farmhouse. And uh, so after a couple hours, mom and dad being gone, the babies were ready for a reunion. And uh, so Nana would take them out on the porch swing and they would hang over the porch rail looking up and down South Street for the car when mom and dad were coming home. That's what Philippians 320 is all about. We're busy here. We're doing it here. But we're constantly looking because we're not at home here. We're looking for going there. Hebrews 12, 22 said, You have come to the Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. It's going to be a reunion with brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, people, group, and nation. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when that trumpet sounds and the voice of the archangel calls, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the cloud. Together, reunion in the cloud, and so together we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So I use David Platt's extended definition of the gospel. You may want to take a picture of this on the wall rather than try to write it down. The gospel is the good news that the only true God, the just and gracious creator of the universe, has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and has sent His Son, God, in the flesh to bear His wrath against sin through His substitutionary death on the cross, and to show His power over sin and death and the resurrection from the grave so that everyone who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus alone as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. How will we then escape if we neglect such a great Salvation. Salvation. I, like you, have been intrigued by the process of our departure from a foreign land and the end of a two-decade long war. And the leadership of our nation, trying to change the narrative to needles in the arm and cloth over the face Well, 10 to 12,000 of our brothers and sisters are marked individuals, if they simply have a Bible app on their iPhone, they're shot on the spot. The sword is their great threat. Some of our retired special forces in defiance of the authorities have gone in to the land and they have delivered hundreds of the faithful and the loyal. It's called the Pineapple Project. People go to the fence and they would flash a pineapple picture on their phone, which was the secret that would get them. They went in there at their own personal risk to rescue the condemned and the lost. Which raises the question, will there ever be one who is willing to take every risk in order to go into enemy territory and behind enemy lines and rescue the captives, the condemned and the lost? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy, He saved us because of His great love. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Him. He seated us with Christ in heavenly places. He shows the immeasurable riches of His grace in coming ages. For by grace you have been saved. Colossians 1.13 says, Yes, there was one that was willing to leave the comforts and security of his home and to risk His very life for our rescue. He had delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Or 1 Thessalonians 1.9 You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. This Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Yet it was the will of God, Isaiah 53, to crush him. He was put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Or Psalm 68, which is cited in Ephesians chapter 4, when he said, And the chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands of thousands, and the Lord... Is among them sinai is now the sanctuary you ascended on high leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men even among the rebellious that the lord god may dwell there blessed be the lord who daily bears us up god is our salvation our god is a god of salvation and to god the lord belong deliverances from death but god will strike the heads of his enemies the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. There is a glorious triumphal entry. Our conquering commander has earned the power of life and death. Just as a Roman general had the authority to declare this one lives and this one dies. So the Lord Jesus has earned that right. He has earned the honor of our adoration and praise. Hebrews will convince us of this, that true worship is simply making much of Jesus. And He has earned the authority to take and to give. Psalm 68, but grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led host captives and He gave gifts to men. That's Ephesians chapter 4. He takes the great gift giver, gives to us, gifts appropriate to our task in his mission. We we are the captives that he has rescued, he has set us free. And when he did that, he gave us spiritual gifts in order that we might serve with him and for him. Right in your margin of Bible, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. These gifts that he's given us, they are not rewards, they are responsibilities. They are not possessions. They are privileges. They're not trophies. They're tasks. God's word to the church of the Hebrews was, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Christ Jesus is God's final word. He is the one who lived the life we could not live. He died to deaths we deserve to die. And he conquered the only enemy that we could not defeat. This Jesus went into enemy territory. He gave his life to rescue you and me. So we come to 2 Corinthians 5.17. I love this text. Thanks be to God. Who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death. And the other a fragrance from life to life. But who is sufficient for these things? Which brings us back to the question of Hebrews Is he enough? The question I had another way I was going to wrap it up. The urgency of the gospel is this again if God by His grace has brought you here to hear the wonder of the eternal Son of God who is willing to put His life on the line and to give it up for you and for me, how can you neglect that great salvation? If it's not to Jesus that you choose to go, then where else will you go? God bless you, dismiss.